What is up, everyone? Welcome to the coolest movie talk podcast on the planet. We are back, the continuation of our legacy series uh, with the Christopher Nolan films. Joining me again, Nathan Sammy, human extraordinaire and movie nerd. Yo, hey River, good to be here, man. Uh, keen to talk Nolan, all things Nolan, and uh, especially coming to, I think, the film that made me a Nolan fan. I'm very excited. Oh, I uh, actually didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was a riveting experience. And I think this movie for me, we'll get into it a bit more, but this movie for me gave me the same kind of sense of wonder as The Matrix did when I first watched that. So I remembered it being a very pivotal kind of moment. And I was just coming out of high school, I think, at the time. I would have been 19 when it when it um, appeared. So, yeah, let's go. Let's mm. go. <laughs> let's go. Let's Thanks go. And, of course, here. my name is River Villy, and I'm the risen host of Legit Cool Podcast, where we review, recap, analyze, and critique films. And this is an exciting time for us because we love to talk about specific directors. And of course, we're doing Christopher Nolan's films. And this movie that we're going to be reviewing and recapping today is, if you haven't already guessed, Inception. Inception. Big, big film. Came out in 2010. And I still actually vividly remember my time going to this film. Um, I forced a friend of mine to come see the movie (laughs) because he... um, I think he he was into films, but clearly not as into films as I am. And I always find myself forcing a lot of people to come see films when, you know, I know that they're probably not into films the same way I do. So we're not quite sharing the same enthusiasm or passion for film, but yet I'm forcing him to come along. So he he came along with him and his wife and... um, and I was like so amped to go see it and I was talking about the director and what he's done and talking about the crew members that were involved, same crew members from Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, blah, 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 you know, giving him this big nerd, um, uh, <laughs> big nerd gush in his expression. And I think by the end of it, I was so taken aback by the movie. Um, my friend and his wife were just confused. They had no <laughs> idea what the movie was about. Um and they were like, did you not find that movie confusing? I was like, uh, not really, nah. I found it quite easy to follow. <laughs> um, and this seems to be like an ongoing occurrence with anybody that watches Inception for the first time or even watches it for the second time. They find themselves confused. And I can see why it can be confusing. But um, I actually think that this is part of the easiest nolan movies to follow would you agree i yeah absolutely i think i think it's funny because if you go back and watch i think his his last confusing movie if 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 someone was to go back into his archive at the point that inception came out the movie that you would get stumped on a bit would be the prestige but that's more from Mm. the sense of how the story is being told more so than what's actually happening in the story Mm. but in this case i i think it was funny too because i think i had a lot of friends I remembered, um, because that was when YouTube was on its way up and up, uh, that a lot of reviewers were coming up with issues around the complexity of the concept mixed with Nolan's way of storytelling. And so maybe it's those two things hand in hand that like, yeah. And and I think, you know, it, it wasn't so much the case for movies going forward until, you know, you hit something like Tenet. Uh, his latest release, um, that you, you have that same sense of, okay, like, the concept is quite, like, high evolution, it's quite uh, out there, and then his 
telling a complex story with a high concept. And I think, mm. um, I think Inception's definitely. <laughs> I think I think it's where where you could say it's got those similar veins to the Matrix, where there's something a, a deeper way of operating that everyone generally isn't used to. And then mm. Nolan's also a filmmaker who, as we've already talked about quite a bit so far in this series, is not a director that dumbs down his story for the audience. He he expects the audience to try and keep up and also wants them to be a bit confused. And that gives his movies a lot of rewatchability. Yeah. Uh, I remember um, <laughs> my friend, uh, He the first thing he said to me at the end of Tenet was like, man, Christopher Nolan doesn't give a shit about his audience, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I can... Uh, can understand what he means by Tenet because you know Tenet is uh it's probably his most ambitious film in terms of its storytelling alone. Um, definitely one of his most ambitious. But um, I, I'd agree with you in in saying that the prestige is is much more harder to follow as in terms of its narrative uh, compared to something like Tenet. I think Tenet um, has confusing elements to it, but only in the sense of trying to follow the timeline. But I always find that, you know, if you if you watch a film like Ten, I've seen it like five times or something, so mm. I've had time to mull over it and think about it a little bit more. Um, if you focus less on the timeline but focus more on the characters and how they're dealing with the situation, I think it's much easier to follow the film. But, um, yeah, I, I still think Prestige is, is much more sophisticated and complex in its storytelling. Absolutely. I think um, Prestige is probably one of... We've already talked about this too. I think it's my favorite of his films, but it's definitely so the, good. One, the one which has the cleanest story concepts, character development, um, the rivalries, all of those kinds of things. Whereas, and I think this is where like Inception really put Nolan on the map outside of Batman because this was blockbuster action adventure and it's a heist film. And if you just, I think for the everyday watcher, you just picture it as this is a heist film, but they're heisting dream ideas oh, oh they're heisting <laughs> ideas within dreams and so that bit's weird but if you like a heist film you'll like this film it's putting the gang together um i know river you're not a big rick and morty fan but there was a bit of a parody well there's a few inception rift parodies in rick and morty one of them in season one but in um i think season four so their second last season they did a very funny heist episode where they just took the piss out of heist films and how heist films are all about putting the team together and how the heist has already been done by the, um, by the time that the heist actually comes around and all that kind of stuff. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's they silly. take the piss out of Inception, do they? They take the piss out of Inception. Uh, yeah. Mm. A lot. A lot. <laughs> um, and, and that, that might raise the question as we talk about this film is, is this movie, or is Nolan being too clever for his own good? Uh, in this movie. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> good question to ask. Good, very, very good question to ask. So, Inception had a budget of $160 million um, and grossed worldwide $826,137,000 worldwide. Um, its domestic uh, box office was 292 So, that's a huge jump from. Um, I guess his previous films, it, it didn't quite beat The Dark Knight, but yeah. it's, I mean, I'm not I'm not expecting it to beat The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight was a little bit of an anomaly for its time yeah. and its box office earnings, right? But this, like, well, so, even this is this is twice what 
the most recent, the Batman, Matthew Reeves, Batman made. True. Yeah. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Like, and that's, that's right. That, that over a decade true. ago that's now. True. So, man. Yeah, wild. Yeah, it did really well at the box office. So, obviously, um, at this point, uh, Christopher Nolan has become a star child for Warner Brothers and they want to keep him as long as they can. Um, so Inception was released on July 16th and this is Nolan's seventh film, but this is the sixth film of the Nolan uh, slate that we're actually reviewing because we haven't included his first one, which is the following. Um, it was nominated for eight Academy Awards at the 83rd Oscar Academy Awards, um, but only won four. So uh, to my disappointment, <laughs> it was nominated for Best Picture and never won it. Uh, I don't know if you recall any of the Academy Awards back in 2011, Nate, but um, the movie that actually won over Inception was King's Speech. <laughs> really? <laughs> Which I, I, lo- I love. I, um, I think Jeffrey Rush and Colin Farrell's performances are great. But, oh, Colin, Colin Firth, sorry. But yeah, what? Mm. <laughs> this, is, this is. I feel like, in, as, in, as far as uh, films that have aged well, um, and I think also, yeah, follow like following the King's Speech with um, what what we get in the Crown. Yeah, what? Mm. That's so frustrating. It's kind of it's kind of weird. But um, I guess we got to talk about the awards series, <laughs> and this is the DiCaprio era of. Hey, I'm DiCaprio. I get nominated for everything, and I never win anything. Yeah, I know. I, I, what year was it? He won the, the Revenant. Revenant. Didn't he win the Revenant? Was that the movie that he won? That's the, that's the movie he won the for. I and I feel was, like I can't remember. What this was, was the first one. This was one of the movies. He won, right? Yeah, yeah. The yeah, so Revenant was what he won for. But I think this was one of the movies that really put him into like that 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 element of um, Hollywood gossip around. His, his ability to get nominated and his inability to win. <laughs> but um, I, I love his performance in this. I think DiCaprio does a fantastic job in this movie. Um, yeah, He does a really good job. Um, but unfortunately, he wasn't actually nominated for Best Actor for this. Um, the other awards that were nominated for Inception was the Best Original Screenplay, uh, Best Score, Art Direction. But they only won Best Sound Editing, Sound Mixing, cinematography and visual effects so at least i'm really really happy that they won cinematography for this because of course wally fester comes back um to join nolan in his movies he's done pretty much most of his movies up until now except for the following i believe um he's done every single film that nolan has done so far so good on wally fester for winning this dop and visual fix i mean i'm actually kind of surprised that they got visual fix though because there's only about 500 visual effects shots in this movie. Um, when you look at a movie like this, you'd expect, you know, a big blockbuster, high action, high impact movie. You'd expect up to 3,000 visual effects just to give you some perspective on that. Um, but they only actually used 500 shots, um, which is really a testament to Nolan's ability to create practical effects for any of his films. It's it's very um, and, and again that that sense of him being an auteur who follows Kubrick in into pushing the boundaries of what you can film versus what you can just place in and in, in effect in visual effects and I think like all of those elements that you would assume to have been done with visual effects 
so much of those moments. Like I think when, <laughs> sorry, I'm just going to keep calling her Juno, but um, no, her name is Elliot Page. Elliot Page and, and Leo are like having, having their, um, those first, um, uh, <laughs> explainers around the, the concept of the movie and having, um, the boxes in Paris and the street explode around them. Like all of those things weren't done with as many visual effects as you would think. And I think that's so sick. Like, I think that's a real, real testament to being able to win that with so, um, so few mm, visual effects. Mm. Um, yeah. uh, yeah, you're right about the visual effects. Um, I actually seen the behind the scenes of that particular scene you're talking about that dream sequence where they're blowing things up in the street. And then the only visual effects that are in it are just, um, I think it's like the, the footpath, I think is uh, a visual effects shot. Obviously they're not going to blow up a footpath, but, um, I think it's a little bit of that and some of the other like fruits and vegetables that are flying but yeah otherwise they did proper catapulting from in that scene which is pretty impressive so even though they didn't win best picture they did win best picture for the uk empire magazine so not as prestigious as the oscar awards but at least they got some kind of best picture out of that um with a running time of two hours and 20 a the popular minutes, awards, yeah. <laughs> The running time of two hours and twenty-eight minutes. This movie scored eighty-seven percent with the critics on Rotten Tomatoes and ninety-one percent for the audience. Are you surprised by that? Do you agree with it? Do you think it's too low, too high? It's something that um is definitely to be said of the last. Fair. Yeah, I think it's fair, <laughs> and I think part of it is one of the reasons that they um were nominated, which is original screenplay, is that particularly at that point. And today, still, original screenplays, original work, and high concept work that's original just hasn't been happening in the last, you know, 10, 15 years Mm. of Hollywood. So I think people show up once they have the word of mouth that says, this is really cool, this is really different, this is really well done. Um, I think if you have all of those three things people show up and then people mm. it does almost in many ways if you've, you've got those three parts hitting then even if it isn't perfectly done people are gonna give it give it kudos yeah so yeah That's very cool. i think so yeah i think people still admire the attempts for um trying to create big ideas and big concepts in such a movie like this and i think for the most part mm-hmm. he does really well um Here's some interesting facts about this movie, though. Nolan based the heist team on a film crew. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I remember someone mentioning to me that he did base, or maybe they didn't hear him say it, but somebody was trying to analyze like how the heist team was put together, and they they sort of drew this um, comparison to a film crew. But it's actually fact. Um, he mentioned this in an interview that he done with, uh, I'm not sure which um, company he interviewed with, but... He basically says that Cobb is the director, Arthur is the producer, Eames is the star, Ariadne is the production designer, and Sato is the meddling studio executive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And Fisher is the viewer. So um, it's kind of like the whole idea of having a film crew and also having the audience Mm. themselves. Um, And, you know, Nolan was sort of saying that he – he wanted to draw from what he already knows and what he already is familiar with, which is a film crew. So, you know, why not base the heist team off that film crew concept? Cause he knows it really well. Um, 
which makes sense. I think when you watch this movie, you you see that there's a well constructed team behind this whole uh, job that mm. they're set out to. I've um, I've heard this as well, and I think I may have even watched that interview. I think. This is something that also happens a bit in the prestige where you see that that sense of creating the awe and the wonder um, of of a magic act is very similar to producing and creating entertainment. Mm. But that 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 line and, and maybe this is something helpful for for looking at this film, but in the prestige you have the two main characters played by Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman's character is all about the entertainment. Whereas Christian Bale's character is all about the execution of mm. the magic. It doesn't really matter if people are wowed. It's that you've done it perfectly. Mm. And you could definitely see that that's a tension that Nolan's always battling with is, do I want to entertain people? <laughs> like Russell Crowe would say, or do I want to, um, or do I want to execute a perfect concept? Um, and I think this is a good balance of both. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, and also you the last part of the film this is a little bit of a spoiler so um we don't want to get into spoilers too much but block it is <laughs> um just for the small part that i'm about to say in the third part of the film uh block is now <laughs> in the third level the third level is actually inspired <laughs> by a bond film which is christopher nolan's favorite bond film and he reckons it's the best bond film which is on her majesty's secret service i don't know if you've seen that but um that's the the whole final accident in the Timothy snow. Dalton. that's life. right that's right yeah the whole final act is actually <laughs> based on that oh, film. Is it Dalton? i don't know i actually haven't seen it yeah i love it <laughs> so good hey because there's one aussie there's one aussie bond and I'm just, I'm just trying to think. I may have yeah, ruined it for Bond fans. I'm a big Bond fan, so I'll quickly check. <laughs> um, yeah, so... 1969, so, I don't think it is. No, yeah. no, I don't think that's... No. So, sorry. Um, but so, yeah, I mean... Lazenby, yeah, the Australian Bond. Ah, <laughs> there we go. Okay, okay. Um, so, yeah, Inception stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Elliot Page, Tom Hardy, Ken Watanabe... Dilip Rao, Killian Murphy, Tom Berginger, Marion Collatard, Michael Caine, and Peter Postlewaite. Nate, what are your initial thoughts? Summarize really quick and yeah, how, what do you think about this film before we get into the recap? For sure. Um, I love it. I think it's action-packed. It's a fantastic blockbuster it's got those elements of a heist film that you love, but then everything about its concept around utilizing a space which we all have familiarization with, but haven't seen, um, I guess, an almost an arti- like a logical, articulate idea of how you could use this in a story, which is dreams. Like, how could you logically, you know, utilize dreams in a way which has purpose that they just take one simple core concept that there's this idea of shared dreaming and shared dreaming enables people to infiltrate thoughts, implant thoughts, change thoughts, um, steal thoughts. And that this is just a story following people that all operate in this world, kind of similar to John wick. And when you like think of John wick and like, a world of assassins. This is just a similar idea. And so I've, um, I've just always been excited and loved this film because of 
like having such a crazy concept that's just so different to what I'm used to in other shows and other movies. Um, and I think in terms of the cast, their action, like action set pieces, the actual process of inception, <laughs> which like utilizing all of these elements to tell a story, the actual kind of core concept of what they're doing is quite simple. But then in the movie, it seems almost secondary to making a whole heist happen. Um, and on my latest like watch of it for this review, I, I was just really struck by trying to follow exactly how they're trying to incept this guy with the idea that they want him to have uh, and how that folds in. So, man, yeah, I just love it. I just, um, I think this is a movie that will continue to stand the test of time. Uh, and I think this is the movie that Nolan is always looking back on and trying to recreate for his next kind of generation of films. Um, and I think Tenant might have been an example of a failed attempt of that. Uh, but that's just my thoughts. So, yeah. What about you, River? Okay, so, um, yeah, man, I'm I'm with you on that. I love, love, love of this movie. And I have pretty vivid um, uh, memories of seeing this movie multiple times. Some, I don't know, five or six times or something at the cinema, probably even more. Um, but I was, it was at this point that I was anticipating every single Christopher Nolan film from then on. I mean, I was pretty convinced from The Dark Knight. Um, and I guess I was convinced with uh, Batman Begins and The Prestige, but this movie in particular showed the scope and how wide Christopher Nolan can go with his um, his talent and his skill in filmmaking. This is the first time that we've ever seen him do massive set pieces on a scale that is um, haven't really been seen before in terms of how he manipulates the cities, how he manipulates, um, um, I, I guess it's kind of like the, the choices for camera shots, you know, the wide angle shots that he uses on the city and the the rotating set pieces and stuff like that, I think is huge. And I don't think I've ever seen that in a film before, um, especially watching this in IMAX. I saw this in IMAX and I was like blown away by how massive the scope is. Um, and so the movie feels like it's large. You know how there's a lot of epic films that people would say, oh, this is like a large scale film. And I think for the most part, they are accurate, but this one feels, actually feels and looks like a large film. So I absolutely love it. I love the cast in it. I think Leonardo DiCaprio does an outstanding performance in this. And I think he should have been at least nominated for best performing uh, best performance at the Oscar Awards. Um, his support cast, like JGL and Elliot Page, Tom Hardy, Ken Watanabe. I mean, I think my favorite cast members in this would probably be Leo, uh, Elliot Page, and JGL. Oh, I guess in Tom Hardy as well. I mean, I think I them Tom as <laughs> Tom Hardy's crazy. He's so, so good. As good. I think everybody was so cut was cast so well in their roles and they contributed to the story perfectly. Like there wasn't any wasted cast members and no wasted uh, roles or anything like that. Um, I think everybody done a great job. I think Killian Murphy's good. Tom Berenger, I think they will do a good job. Marion Collatard. Now this might be a little bit of 
an unpopular opinion for Inception, but she probably was my least favorite in the film. <laughs> <laughs> She's probably my least favorite, but um, I think she does she does a good job. Just I had a uh, I had a thought on that because I didn't like her, and I've always found her character frustrating. But then right. in my latest viewing, I just had to continue, and I think this really helps redeem her character and and i think what what um marion does with her as an actor um is that this is all Cobb's projection of her and not only that it's a twisted projection of her it's the her he remembers from the night that she she died and so i think that that um that energy that she's giving of this kind of sociopath psychopath that definitely just helps me think, ah, oh, this isn't what she was like at all. And I just remember the bit where JGL says to, to Elliot Page's character when she says, what was Mal like? And mm. she's like, she was lovely. She was just a wonderful human being. Like, mm. and you could completely believe that. And it's just really, yeah. that, and so that's a really heartbreaking element from the film. Mm. There's something very devastating about this. I mean, it brings up a Nolan trope of uh, dead wives. Um. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think I think my um, my sort of criticism on her not being my favorite character is not necessarily to do with her performance or the role that she's given. It's more just um, to do with the fact that it, she, it it seems like a character that was left behind um, a little bit too much for my liking. If you're gonna um, have this kind of narrative uh, with her relationship with Leo, you know, so. Um, it's every time I see relationships develop or an attempt to develop throughout the film, I want to kind of see more of it. And so my critique is more so on the fact that there wasn't probably enough screen time that I would like, because I, I want to see the relationship take uh, a whole kind of life of of itself and to show kind of the meaning behind the character, which I I I think he does for the most part. It's it's not like the, the, the biggest criticism. It's more just, um, I probably would have wanted to see more of it, you know, and like, cause, cause every time you introduce a relationship element, I want to feel something, you know, I want to feel like an emotion driven out. And I don't actually get that from, um, from her character and Leo's character. It's like, they seem like very stoic characters that I can't quite connect to. I'm just like, okay, cool. You had a, you had a pretty good relationship, but then you kind of messed it up. Um, towards the end <laughs> um, no, with some bad agree. choices. But mm. um, yeah, it, there's like every time there is a relationship element, I want to feel something. So, um, but yeah, no, it's everybody's great in this. And I ranked this movie super high, but I'm going to save that ranking for a little bit later. <laughs> <laughs> um, why don't we get into the recap? Mm. Oh, that's that's an inception transition right there. so uh if you're if it's your first time here then just to give you a bit of a rundown we're doing a recap on the entire film where we go through act one two and three and then get to the conclusion of the film and we'll wrap it up by giving a uh 10 out of 10 10 out of 10 (laughs) giving it a out of 10 rating (laughs) that's not a spoiler by the way um given an out of 10 rating and then uh we close off the show with that and so in this recap, um, we'll go through this introduction, which I think is kind of a key point to this movie. I'm going to switch it up a little bit uh, with Inception because I think this introduction is quite a long introduction. It's not something that we're used to in a Christopher Nolan film. Um, 
but I think it's something that we should probably touch up on because I think it sets up the movie quite well, especially when it gets to into its bulky act two. Okay, <laughs> you ready for this? Ready. All right, so in act one, you know, the intro to this is actually the dream itself. All right, so um, when we get into this opening sequence with Cobb and Arthur introduced as the extractors, uh, they perform a corporate espionage using experimental dream-sharing technology to infiltrate their targets subconscious and extract information. So, you know, the beginning of this film we, we don't know. Obviously, we don't know it's a dream. We just think it's just another sequence and another kind of action piece that Nolan wants to classically introduce his films as. You know, he likes to do this massive kind of um, action drop at the beginning of the film. But mm. um, as opposed to this intro scene being sort of normally five minutes, this goes on for about a good like seven or eight minutes, probably even longer than that, maybe ten minutes. Mm. <laughs> Um, and this whole time, you don't know that it's a dream until it's revealed that um, uh, through, I think it's uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Arthur, I think he's the one that sort of reveals that it's a dream, you know, when they're going through that dialogue sequence between Sato and... And his office, um, so it's a big conference hall. Office. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and sure enough, you know, uh, they kill JGL's character, Um and this is actually a really cool dialogue sequence, which we'll tap into a little bit in a second. Um, they injure him first and then they kill him. And then he actually wakes up into another dream. Mm-hmm. And we don't actually know that it's a it's a dream within a dream until later on that scene, which fun, finally ends the introduction of Inception. So just this whole this whole scene here, let's just start off with the um, whatever... It's like the Japanese temple or something that he's in. It's, I it's guess. like his palace or his um, his palace, right? Yeah. We don't really know the location as such. We can kind of assume that it's in Japan because of the architecture and stuff yeah. like that, right? It's, it's, um, it's Sato's place of comfort, I guess you could place say. Place of comfort, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's start off with this. It's it's, start, it's set at nighttime. There's about six characters that we introduced to, but the main characters we introduced to are Cobb, Arthur, Sato, and Maul. Maul and and Maul is kind of like a mysterious character already. And I think I love the fact that we're introduced to Maul as this super mysterious character that we're not gonna. It's it's sort of planting a seed, <laughs> planting an inception, <laughs> planting a seed um, to make you make you sort of remember that this is a character that you're going to learn about a lot more later on in the film so what are your thoughts on this whole introduction thing and and how did you kind of feel after watching it again for the second or third time whatever it is compared to the first time yeah for sure i think um part of and and there's definitely an enfolding of uh of story beats as the film progresses. So this is like one of the first set pieces that crops up again, a couple of other times in the film. And I think it even crops up at the very beginning. There's, 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 um, I think in, uh, if I'm remembering right, there's part of this opening part also takes place from something that happens at the end of the film. Uh, That's right. So yeah. you're it's like you, the beginning, the ending is the beginning as well. And- yeah. As well and so, as, yeah. so the set the set pieces are the same for the beginning and the end of this. And so this this palace is is such a great um, kind of riddle to displace you as as an as a watcher. And I remembered, I think one of those elements of this first opening set piece that really awes you once you realize it's a dream is the water 
um, rushing in and destroying the space. But second to that, you also get this sense of comfortability of the of, of um, Cobb's character. Like he's just so comfortable with being in this space. He understands Dream and you get that sense that he's an expert at what he does. He's an expert at the craft. And um, I love his, like, I, I think maybe something the film does really well is, like I said, that similar vibe to John Wick where you have... Um, people going about their daily profession, but their profession just so happens to take place in a dream. Like him and JGL know exactly what to do, what's going on. Uh, there's even a bit later on as the scene progresses where like their architect and then even later, later when you find them in reality, the the, the kid on the train in, in Japan, where like mm-hmm. even he's in on it. Like there's this sense of, oh, this is something we do all the time. Um, <laughs> And I think that that kid, immediate... that kid, by the way, has got like the best extra position or the extra role ever. Oh man, in history. such a good gig! <laughs> yeah, you just like just pretend you're like some like gangster, chill Asian kid playing his Game Boy, but is actually like getting paid ten yeah. G's to like just drug people. <laughs> but um, I think what I do really enjoy, oh, and I think yeah. it's unexpected at the very beginning. That's probably this... what he actually got paid in real life too. Yeah, yeah. Know? The dude has like no lines. <laughs> so good but um um the visceral violence that starts the film um which also becomes something that's quite ongoing is the violence that happens in the dreams that doesn't happen in reality uh until it starts to happen in reality and that's where you start to question Mm, what's a dream and what's reality so i love that i love that um that kind of energy to it i love this first scene yeah so good what about you yeah um I, just, I actually just remember you know um first time watching it um just kind of memorized uh mesmerized by the cinematography particularly and um you you can't help but just remember if, if there's one thing that you can only remember from the opening scene is really that um time where he gets dumped into the bathtub and the water goes flooding into the space i mean that that was like an unreal experience to see. Um, and I've actually seen the behind the scenes with that. Um, they used like these big jet propellers or something like that to, to, <laughs> to just flood the whole space. It's actually kind of insane to watch. I'm like, wow. I mean, you can tell that it's not visual effects, but then to see the behind the scenes for that moment is just, it's unbelievable to watch. Um, yeah, love the opening scene. It's it's a great introduction and you're kind of pulled into this world immediately. And I think this is what Nolan does so well is that he draws the audience into his world immediately. And there's like no questions whatsoever what you're going to get yourself into other than the fact that you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. But it's more just that um, there is a big concept going on and there's a big ride that we have to ride. And he does this in every single film that he has made. Um, he just throws the audience into the deep end. Um, but it's also, it's always good. It's always for a good reason. And it's always for, um, uh, I guess like a, a justifiable reason when the movie starts to carry on and it's like later acts and stuff like that. So yeah, it's really, really cool. Um, <clears throat> so as we progress into the movie, um, Sado is uh he he presents a job to Cobb and Arthur um well I I guess like just before this Cobb and Arthur are trying to figure out you know what are they going to do next we're seeing as like their job in the beginning is a failure and this is actually a big thing it's it's kind of a big thing to uh put your main characters into a 
point of vulnerability right at the beginning of the film. Like that they're not actually winners. <laughs> when we introduce to the characters, they actually lose their first uh, job. And so both Cobb and Arthur are trying to figure out what are they going to do next. And then they, I think Cobb mentions that he's going to go to Buenos Aires just to um, fish out another job, right? But he gets into the helicopter and they find out that one of their guys, which I can't remember his name, um, but he's the architecture. He's the architect. He's the architect. He's the architect and he's um, captured by Sato um, because uh, he decides to give up the information to Sato. Um, he, he pretty much just caves and gives in. Um, so at this point of the film, um, it's it's still right at the beginning. It's only about like 12 minutes into the film. <clears throat> We're given vulnerability for our main characters. Um, there's sort of a quick turn of events that needs to happen before it gets into the chunk, uh, the main chunk of the film. Um, there's one thing in particular that I love about this moment is the editing. And I think this is where, this is why the editing was actually won in the Academy Awards because the editing choices and just in the helicopter between Cobb, Arthur and Sato is some of the most brilliant editing pieces that I've seen in a very, very long time. And I'll explain a little bit more about that, but, but, um, um, yeah, just in this part, you know, they're trying to figure out what their next move is, and then it turns out that the next move is going to be what the movie is about, which is Inception. So um, walk me through the, the, what's going through your mind at this point, because it's so early on in the film that we we ha- we discover like what the film is going to be about eventually, which is the exposition about Inception. Hmm. I think, um, I think, uh, like, yeah, if I if I go off like the things that I I know now versus my first watch of this, which again was like over a decade ago, I think mm. um, for me watching this now at at the point, and I think this is nice because you get to just go into Nolan's mind about what he's trying to do, and and I think again where you think of the concepts that Nolan's done in the past, this movie drip feeds information well and only has like one or two really expository moments. And so not only does Killian play the audience, I think Ellen Page's character is also designed to be the audience a little bit later on. So you fully understand certain elements of what you can and can't do, what the rules are to this dream sharing thing. But I think at the point what I where, where Sato, JGL and, um, and Cobb are having this, uh, Arthur and Cobb are having this conversation is – that you get understanding that Arthur's a bit straight-laced, that Cobb is really good at what he does, and he also has a bit of a dark past, uh, and Sato is actually a lot smarter than <laughs> than they took, like they gave him credit for. And I, I think um, that I like JGL's explanation of, of what Inception is very quickly and very confidently, that idea of an elephant, I think. It's like, mm. think of an elephant look, I, I, I've given mm. you an idea, but I didn't place it there. Like I didn't, I didn't make you think of it. Like I just told you it. So you're thinking of it. And I, and I think what I like in this moment is that Cobb's mm. like, yeah, it's possible. This thing that everyone thinks is impossible. So you know that you're in for a ride because the concept's weird and Cobb knows something that other people who generally mm. do this don't know how to do. So, um, yeah, I, I was um I was quite intrigued because again, if you if you have this sense of these are professionals, these are people doing things they do all the time, the stakes have just been lifted. And the second element to those stakes is that Cobb needs an out because he's in trouble. 
on a larger level, there's something that he wants, which is to get home to his family and he can't and something's holding him back and you don't know what that is yet. So yeah, love it. Love it. Yeah. And th- this is actually a good segue into wh- why I think the editing in this particular scene is so damn good. And it's also a mark of great performance by Leo as well. Um, <clears throat> when, when it's going through that whole situation that you just explained on JGL explaining what the inception is and um, giving the audience enough information for us to try and understand this big concept that he's, that, Nolan's about to uh, show us in the film. Um, at the same time, Leo is—he's so deep in his thoughts about what his biggest problem is at the moment, which is he cannot actually get to his family right now. We don't know this of his family yet. We don't know the depth and the emotion behind him not seeing his family yet, but we can see it in the portrayal of his expression um, when Sato says, "You know, um, I can give you an opportunity to go see your family again." Um, the way he reacts to this is it's, it's so, it's so deep and meaningful that I'm like, wow, there's, there's definitely something going on there. There's maybe some trauma or there's some like, you know, disconnect with his family and it's, it's weighing in on him and you can kind of see that. Um, so there's a point where the camera is faced on to Sato and then it goes to JGL and JGL is saying, um, Inception is impossible, um, because the, because the the person can always trace the genesis of the idea, you know, for, you, you cannot fake inspiration. Or so does he say you cannot fake inspiration or something like that? Yeah, inspiration can't be like faked. You can't just yeah give someone something and for them not to know that you gave it to them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when he says that, the camera quickly pans over to Leo, and this is where the editing comes in. Like it, it quickly cuts Leo, and his reaction is that. You, you know that he like he knows that he can do it. That's his subtle reaction, but it's so powerful. Mm. And it cuts back to Sado, and then Sado's trying to say, um, or he's trying to like you know increase his offer or whatever. Mm. And then it cuts back to to uh, Leo and his reaction, saying, "No, it's that's not true." Like, um, and then he doesn't actually explain that he can do Inception or not. But then he just jumps like from that point he just jumps to the job and like you know what if i can do it what what how can i know that you can deliver and he says you can't but i can um so just that that whole sequence of of the camera moving back and forth i can imagine like the camera would have just been like going like you know left right left right whatever but this is where the editing is plays an important part because you see the reaction on his face it it's sort of designed to show you that there's some trauma, there's some emotion. Mm. Um, there's also some conviction of him being able to do this job. Mm. Um, like he's not hesitant whatsoever. So I thought this whole scene was just a great way to set up, like not just not just the job itself, but the relationship between Leo and JGL's character. Mm. Um, Absolutely. And then eventually like how Sato is going to be a part of this. So, so good. It was really, really good. And like after watching it again last night, I was like, wow, oh my God. Like the design, the direction in this particular scene is yeah. huge. It's massive, and no wonder why they won uh, best editing for this film. <laughs> um, yeah, so I loved it. Loved it a lot. That's so good. Oh man, yeah, uh, that, that's a nice little piece. I think that's a nice little moment where you realize what Nolan's abilities are as well. I think mm-hmm. I, I never like never noticed that, but I know the energy of the scene. Like you can, that, and that's good. That's good filmmaking is just knowing what 
they want to get across about the story and about characters mm-hmm. in a exactly way. yeah yeah how do they want us to connect with the character like Cobb and so you know because he's the biggest piece of this puzzle um and he's a character that you definitely fall in love with and he's a character that I love the most in this movie um, so Cobb accepts the offer and assembles his team, and his team is consisting of a forger named Eames, a chemist named Yusuf, and a college student named Ariadne. Ariadne is tasked with designing the dream's architecture, something Cobb himself cannot do for fear of being sabotaged by a projection of his late wife, Mal. Okay, so when um, the the assembly of his, uh, you know, his recruitment process for all his characters, I actually really love this part of the film. I love this bit too. It's, it's, it's so such good. an enjoyable part because we get to go through different parts of the world. You know, there's mm. like geographical differences, which is awesome. It adds to the layers of um, how good this, this movie is because there's different textures, different colors, different sceneries, and mm. um, we're placed in different parts of the world which kind of relates to what i was saying before and how there's a massive scope to this movie so it's such a fun part um and like recruiting uh, uh eames played by tom Hardy, i think was one of my favorite scenes actually he's just so he's so freaking charismatic in this film it's he's great just ridiculous but like i think and one one point to make of this and and this is is definitely a part of that editing process but also about the set pieces is that what this movie starts to do more and more is confuse you between set piece and what's reality and what's dreams and even when you're meeting with tom hardy and you have the people from the engineering company what's the name again the um uh cobalt engineering cobalt and engineering they Hmm. these like nameless faceless suits that are chasing him down (laughs) It like it has that exact same energy that the original opening set piece in Saito's Palace has. You feel like this can't be reality, Cobb getting chased through the streets of Mumbai and like <laughs> and then like, you know, Sato pe- appearing with the car and Tom Hardy like being like this like it's very James Bond, but it's also very like surreal. Like you're like, I don't I don't know if this is reality actually. Like are they just meeting in the dream because it just seems like a better place to have a meeting yeah it seems like a safe place for something. i love yeah. it I, I think that's yeah. so cool and 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 um yeah we can talk about some of those twists later on but i think again those set piece moments just give this yeah this excitement and um i i, I think this movie like many others of, of nolan's especially right now there's such great escapes um since we've been locked down and since we've been in covid like it's um watching the Nolan series is a really great way of just getting out of Sydney. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. Um, there, there's actually like um, a lot of misdirection that happens in this film too, mm. which I really appreciate, you know, just jumping back a little bit to when Leo says, you know, I'm going to go to Buenos Aires to fish out another job or something. We, we think as the audience members, we think, okay, we're going to go to Buenos Aires, but then it's completely interrupted by Sato saying, Hey, um, I've got a job for you. Um, and if you want it out, you know, this is going to be your reward. Mm. Um, and so then instead of going to Buenos Aires, he goes to Mumbai to look for, oh, wait, no, sorry. The first place he goes to is Paris to go. Meet with, um, yeah. Michael Caine's Ariane, character. Michael Caine's character. Yeah. As well, yeah. Um, 
I actually would have loved to see Michael Caine more in this movie. Well, he's got like... that that energy of like being the uh, the old wise guy that has already done this <laughs> in the past. True, he's true. he's already been. Yeah. He's already he used to be Cobb. Like you can believe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah, and he does talk a little bit about, or I guess he alludes a little bit about being involved in this type of um, work in the past. There's probably like a prequel somewhere there, you know, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. I mean, he goes to Paris and he goes to um, uh, find one of Michael Caine's brightest uh, students so he can infiltrate the students. Um, cool little scene that they have, their dialogue, the exchange of dialogue. And um, I think Michael Caine plays an important role by establishing this, this, the fact that Cobb is someone that needs to be with his children. He needs to be a father. Mm. And this is the first um, hint that we get of what his character is about and what he's suffering mm. from, which is the detachment from his, his children. Um, so we get to meet Ariadne played by Ellen or Elliot page. who was formerly known as Ellen page. <laughs> um, right. And yeah, so she, she gets hired to be the architect and actually I want to bring some attention to this. The best interview process I've ever seen in my life, which is <laughs> he has to get, um Elliot Page to design a maze that you can finish. What is it? Design a maze that you can finish make, within make it, two minutes. Yeah. Create a maze in a minute that you can complete and takes two complete minutes. Complete in two minutes. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Which is like very tough. That's a tough gig. It's like trying to create a riddle. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's, <right>? that's hard. <laughs> but that's kind of like the perfect interview that you need to have yeah. for such a job so yeah. sophisticated like this. Um, and it's, it's a great way to speed up the story or, or, you know, to sort of have a bit more efficiency behind story telling for this particular movie. Um, but also like straight to the point at the same time. So I feel like it does a lot for the character. It does a lot for the story that they're about to establish. Well, there's one other element to that whole dialogue between Elliot and, um, DiCaprio where they, they are both back and forthing around what you can and can't do in a dream. That's right. But he's telling her lies or he's telling half truths. He's telling the truths that he wants to control the situation. Yeah. And she she's so like with it that she starts to like clue in on those things. When he calls yeah. out that she's like creating from her memory, mm-hmm. but she's creating too much of a place. And he says, Don't do that because if you do that you can create gaps or holes that stop you from knowing what's dream and what's reality. And yeah. it's such a great insight into who he is. And even in that very initial, um, I think one or two dream sequences that he's sharing with her, that Mallory starts to infiltrate that. And he starts to notice that something's from his own psyche is starting to affect the dream. And that's just mm. brilliant. Yeah, I think it also shows the relationship that he wants to establish with uh, Ariadne, which is that um, he wants to trust Ariadne in this job as being the architect. Um, And you're right about the half-truths, you know. He only wants to share what is going to be important for her to carry out the job Mm. um, while also not being hurt by allowing her to be hurt by the same things that he's been hurt with. Mm. And him performing this illegal job. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, fu- it's funny how he says, um, this job isn't strictly legal. Legal. 
<laughs> it's um, so I think, like all the dialogue is actually not wasted at all. There is no wasted dialogue as far as I can see in this movie. Like yeah. every piece of line, whether it, whether it's a line to do with establishing the plot or a line to do with some kind of um, uh, comedic levity or you know some emotion portrayed behind the characters i don't think anything is really wasted at all mm, yeah absolutely i think i think it's um tight scripting and it um tight it scripting. really helps because particularly as we'll see when we get to act three and the the dream infiltration the complexity of what they're trying to do to um killian murphy's character is very complex it's um and the way that they go about it like there's the execution of helping to implant inception Mm. (laughs) and then there's the inception itself and i um i remembered i think on my last rewatch when tom hardy we'll get to that in a sec but like tom hardy explaining to everyone what the steps to inception are that you have to really be like, okay, on this level, this is what they're trying to do to Killian Murphy. On this level, this is what they're trying to do to him. And on this mm. level, this is the inception. This is the concept. And um, mm. yeah, it's great. It's very cool. <laughs> it's very, very cool. Um, Ariadne is sort of taking on her first, let's say, trial, I guess, for the, mm. for the job where she's put into the dream state and she actually has no idea that she's in a dream. Mm. And then when Cobb is explaining to her, um, well, He's yeah, he's I think this is what I like about this particular scene is that he explains the rules of a dream. Um whether those rules are real or not it's it's kind of besides the point, but it's establishing the rules with the dream in this film, which is he says something along the lines of um you know when you're in a dream, you actually never know how you even got to the dream. Which I'm pretty sure you can relate. I can definitely relate to that too. When I'm in the dream, I actually have no idea how I got into that dream. <laughs> and it's not until you wake up that you realize something was strange. And that's mm. exactly what he describes to um, Ariadne. And then he's like, think about it, Ariadne. How did you get here? And she's like, huh? And then this moment where the camera is like panning backwards and she's having this moment of realization that, oh my gosh, I think I'm in a dream. It's such a revealing moment. I'm sort of, as a viewer, I'm sitting there going, oh my God. I actually feel that it's in a dream, even though I know that it's in a dream. <laughs> I I can feel the moment. I can feel the experience that Ariadne as a character is going through. I think it's really well shot and really well scripted. It's very very cool, and and it's um it's preceded by a very smart little scene where in the scene prior she's wearing a different scarf, and seems like it's ah, the same day. Yeah. They're just talking through the same things, and they're still in Paris, but suddenly she's wearing a different scarf, and they're sitting at a cafe. And that's a that, good that's a that's good piece of detail. I didn't actually very, realize that. And it's very good filmmaking because you're so used to um well well you talk about time skips, right? If you think of any film, like we talk about big time skips and like a, a very famous one from recent films is uh Avengers Endgame, where you're told mm. that time has passed by five years. And a lot of films do it at the beginning of a film, it'll play something and then it'll skip ahead to eight mm. years, ten years in the future. Where are they now? But in mm. films all the time, you're always having time skips between scenes. You're not seeing the boring part where they hop in the car. You're sure. not seeing the part where they go to the bathroom. Like You never see people go to the bathroom in a film <laughs> unless there's a reason for it, right? And in this yeah. film, you have that sense of, oh, yeah, like all the time during an exposition montage, one character will be talking to another and then it'll just cut to the next scene. But in yeah. this, some something much more significant happened at one point. He probably told Ariadne, we're going to go under, we're going to go into a dream. 
mm. and you're not going to realize that you're in it. <laughs> yeah. So you might have already explained this to her in the real world, but now he's just re-explaining it in the dream. And I think yeah. that's just that's so yeah, good filmmaking, good storytelling, brilliant good storytelling, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Nolan is a freak when it comes to this type of stuff. 100%. Um, so let's jump into Act 2 here. Um, and in Act 2, um, this is kind of the midpoint of the film where Maurice dies. So Maurice is the father of Robert. Um, so he's already dead. And the team sedates Robert into a three-layered shared dream on a plane to America. Um Time on each layer runs slower than the layer above, which which is what um, that whole scene was about between Cobb and Ariadne. Um, him describing, actually, sorry, uh, Arthur is the one that describes like what are the time differences between dreaming and real time. Um, so everything is much slower, and as you dig deep into the layers, everything gets uh, slower and slower and slower. Mm. So after Sado is uh, wounded. Cobb reveals that while dying in the dream would normally awaken dreamers, use of sed- uh, sedatives will instead send them into a limbo, a world of infinite subconscious. Um, Eames impersonates Robert's gra- uh, godfather, so that's part of his job. His job is to be the impersonator. Um, and I actually never really understood how this works, like the impersonator <laughs> stuff, because like you know they don't actually explain what's like the magic or the illusion behind someone being a like uh impersonator versus someone being the architect (laughs) this is the only thing that the film doesn't quite do and it's a nitpick for me because i know that's not the focus on the film like there'll be too much exposition otherwise Mm. and it'll be it would be too bloated i think if they went into trying to describe what the roles mean and what the rules of the roles are but Mm. do, do you also think it's kind of odd that like okay one how do they establish that one guy is the, the, <laughs> is the impersonator the in, the, yeah. in the in the dream and one person being the architect? Is, is, it, is it because of the device that they're using? There's like encoded DNA or something? I don't know. So I – so because – okay. So like I, I have less problem with that and I have more problem with one other element. So if if you okay. follow if you follow these – the concepts of dream sharing, right, in a dream, the architect, for instance – can create whatever they want to create mm-hmm. and they can do that on the fly and they're just using their imagination. Right. And whoever's the architect of the dream can do what they like. So you see Ariadne do that at the beginning where she like pulls the mirror and then she changes the footpath and then she changes the bridges and, and all of those elements. Right. And I think that that's an element that you can get on board with. And I think that's where Nolan wants you to just take that concept and go deeper. So with, with, Eames's character I didn't notice it in the first viewings and it's really clever because at points there, there's a sense that Nolan's just letting you know that it's Eames even though the other characters don't know it's Eames so at one point at the very end I think he's he's pretending to be the uncle or like you know the the um confidant of uh Murphy's father mm-hmm. and 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 it's just Tom Hardy's face but to Murphy he's seeing his father's confidant. And there's that really cool little bit where the mirrors are like reflecting. That's right. What he looks like. And yeah. And in the elevator, but then you have other points where Tom Hardy does that. (laughs) It's one of my favorite little like funny lines is right into the dream. (laughs) When uh, uh, JGL is trying to snipe down the, the, um, 
like the security, Murphy's security. And Harley oh, yeah. appears, he's like, oh, darling, you have to dream a little bigger. And he pulls out like a freaking bazooka. And so yeah. there's just this sense that they can create whatever they like. And my biggest issue with that is um, actually with, uh, what's his name? I can't remember the, the character's name, but the actor, um, the Indian actor who plays the chemist. Oh, yeah. Um, I can't remember his name either. Dalip? Dalip. 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 Dalip's character has his own chemical concoction, which enables them to control how deep the dream mm-hmm. is and mm-hmm. how um, how affected they are um, to go under and what will wake them and what won't wake them. But what I find interesting is when he sedates them within the first and second levels, is he just imagining the correct serum <laughs> that mm. he's injecting into them and that's working exactly yeah. how he expects it to work? Because I yeah. find that really confusing unless it's really that he makes the one serum at the very top level and that's just going to affect everything else. So, And I think that might be the case and part of why he stays on the first level is because he can control that. I think that's just... It's also related to um, my little issue of um, how do you distinguish like who's going to be architect and who's going to be... When you go into the dream. You know, maybe yeah, the maybe dream. they do have different fluids. <laughs> yeah, it's like you have to just infer that the the device they're using because you know we see the pumps whatever whatever that kind of mechanical contraption is you know it's just a bunch of made-up stuff just for the concept dream yeah 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 (laughs) it's like i guess there's probably some some liquid that is encoded with this is the architect and this is (laughs) yeah just one of those things that i was thinking about uh i think it was like the second or third time i was watching i was like how does the dream know that anyway. <laughs> and it's so anyway. frustrating because there's such an energy to nolan where he's like i'm not a sequels kind of guy except for batman yeah. trilogy yeah and you're like exactly. come on make an inception sequel please like yeah to try and explain the so science cool. behind it yeah. it would be pretty cool i don't know if you it could imagine a netflix franchise could pick it up but i don't think nolan would ever sell it um nah, i don't think, think he'd interest it IP, yeah. no it's too um guarded you wouldn't you know it'd be so valuable you know, oh, it's crazy. such a great filmmaker. Like you wouldn't want to sell that IP. It's funny though, if he ever needs to, just at the end of life, he's like, "All right, give me the money, <laughs> Disney. Give me the money. <laughs> I will have one trillion dollars for all my projects." Um, so we get into this like whole part of explaining what the dreams are going to be, and so the the mission here is to um create Inception with our uh main suspect not suspect not uh our main victim i should say because yeah because um because he is a victim i guess to this whole thing (laughs) the target um the whole idea is to create an inception mission to plant an idea to change the mind of uh maurice no sorry not not to change uh, maurice's mind to change robert's mind Mm. from once he takes over his father's empire Mm. Right. Um, and the whole mission is explained through them going through the dream layers themselves, putting, um, planning their processes together, who's going to be doing what, um, and explaining what the levels will be as well. And why do they need to go through all these deep layers as well? Which I think is kind of the, the strongest point of this movie is, is them explaining how the mission is going to be carried out mm-hmm. and who's going to be involved and what responsibilities they're going to have. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of exposition, but it's the kind of exposition that I think works for any type of movie when you when it's a part of the storytelling process. Mm. Um, 
So I really love this part. Uh, when they explain what level one, two, and three is, I can't remember if, I mean, I can kind of remember, but uh, do you remember how um, I think it's actually Tom Hardy's character, Eames, he explains what level one is? Yep. So, and yeah. then level two and level three. Yep. So in level one, I think, and, and, and it's interesting because there's a little bit of on the fly elements like they've done all, and, and, and I love Eames's character because he's also, he's the actor, but he's also like the investigator, like the researcher, make mm-hmm. sure their facts are true and mm-hmm. then utilizing what information he has to create the best character. He's a bit of yeah. an improviser, right? So he's, yeah. his first level, he wants to utilize the ideas around Murphy's relationship with his father. And he mm-hmm. has some inkling, but he doesn't have a full idea. He's like, let's just utilize an element of what Murphy's relationship, um, um, we should use his name, Robert's relationship to his father is. Yeah. And let's find out if it's close, if it's far, what can we utilize to help us start to manipulate how he thinks about his relationship with his father. Yeah. That, and I think that's level one. And quite early on, they realize, oh, it's not a very good relationship. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's quite messed up. And this is where they actually need to change gears and then they need to actually switch up their yeah. um, their plan here, which is it, it's not something that I expected this movie to do was to always throw a spanner in the works. It's like this movie is already high concept and high ideas. Mm. And for Nolan to just be that ballsy and throw a spanner in the works right in the middle of their heist is huge. Two spanners because one of them is it's raining because Yusuf needs oh, to yeah, pee, true. which is so <laughs> funny. Oh, my gosh. And I guess you could say three spanners when you find out that uh, Murphy's Murphy's mind has also got security, which is sick. That's right. Like it's so, yeah. yeah. So there's three spanners right at the beginning. One, which is that his relationship isn't good with his father. So there's a lot mm. of complex- complexity there. And then the rain, and then the security, <laughs> and That's then Cobb, Cobb's the last element to it. So it's already like shitstorm right at the beginning. Sato gets shot. Like there's so much happening, so much happening. A lot of challenges, a lot of challenges to the plan. And and this is how good storytelling comes into the into the making is that when you're always challenging your characters and pushing them to the point of now they have to come up with new ideas and they have to come up with um, better choices, choices that might not work in your favor, but this is what creates the stakes. It's also what creates the emotional drive behind such a story. Um, and also a lack of, there's a lack of trust in the team right at the beginning where they, they mm. think, oh, we can just exit the dream. And Cobb's like, wait, you can't, because if you leave the dream, you'll end up in limbo because of the sedation that we used. And we didn't tell you that at the beginning. And, um, Ariadne knows that Cobb's psyche is not stable and that that's going to affect the dream and no one else realizes that yet. And it's just so like in that first, after watching this movie so many times, when I came back for this last rewatch, there were so many more elements that made me physically ill with stress. (laughs) I was like, how on earth are they supposed to like pull off this thing? There's a complex father son relationship that they have to break into. Mm. One of their number, the one that's supposed to save Cobb, could potentially die on this mission and then the whole mission's useless to Cobb. And then there's all these other elements to this 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 whole like plan that's already balls up. Um I dig it. It's so good. Mm. <laughs> and then the time factor. Oh man, the time factor. 
Oh man, it's huge. Uh, I want to actually bring up a line that Cobb says here um, because Eames makes the suggestion that we should just make the first level. Um, why don't we run with this idea that, you know, um, I want to break up my father's empire as a screw you to the father. But then Cobb says, um, he says negative. What do you say? Because, okay, so ne- Trump's negative emotion every time. Positive oh, yeah, so emotion? Positive emotion trumps negative emotion every time. Mm. Um, so then he says instead we should um, we should focus on – I'm trying to actually read the captions here because I have it sort of playing in the background. Oh, that's okay, that's okay. Um, yeah, I think they just run with that idea of like let's split up with my father's empire um, in that first level. And then the second level is um, – how did you describe it again? Second level is the hotel, and this is very Kubrick. This is very Kubrick Shining vibes. Um, mm. In this level, it's really interesting because they do change tact. And Cobb says, let's go with helping um, Robert acknowledge that he's in a dream. And what's the name of it? He pretends to be security. Is the Mr. Is it Mr. Charles? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Charles. He has his yeah. Mr. Charles persona where he pretends to be Robert's internal security <laughs> and yeah. in doing so they they and they create they create a, fa- a fake uh pin pin number <laughs> they do that in the right. first level yeah. they create a fake pin number first six digits that come to your head and yeah. then they continue to implant those six digits deeper into his psyche so they become the room numbers in the hotel and this is what this is the genius storytelling that comes into play is that um nolan is sticking to his rules so tight that he utilizes every piece of um, scripting that happens at the beginning, like before they get into the three layer dream sequence, you know, he uses all that scripting as a way to um, justify the character's natural inspiration, right. Or, or natural uh, occurrence of ideas going into his head. This is like insane. I, I don't, I don't think anybody would be able to come up with that concept. Like how do you even think of it? Level. And, and so in this level, Cobb's goal now is to say, hey, you're in a dream and someone in your family has betrayed you and that person is your father's confidant, Browning. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah. so they get Eames to play Browning again and they get Robert to unknowingly break <laughs> into his own subconscious thinking that he's breaking into Browning's subconscious. Yeah. That is ridiculous. And in doing so, also giving um, Robert a sense of betrayal from his family, from his father, and from Browning. Mm. And they're just they're just faking all of that, but yep. making him feel that he's been betrayed and he wants to do what's right for his father's company, which they want him to think is breaking it up. And, and remember, just, this was... Oh, man, yeah, sorry, you go. Well, I was just <laughs> going to say, what's crazy about this film and this whole heist is that at the end of the day, the stakes outside of Cobb are so low. It's literally two rival businessmen and one of them wants to upend the other's (laughs) legacy or his father's legacy and remove this guy from the picture. It's super gross. What Sado is doing is not cool at all. They are working for the bad guy who's just trying to supplant another alternate bad guy. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, it's just, oh, man, media conglomerates, you know? know, One of them has to be a good guy, right? (laughs) 
Yeah, actually, and further to your point about the stakes being so low outside of the dream, this is the this is kind of the juxtaposition of stakes almost, right? That's probably like the best way I can describe it. It's like you're juxtaposing what is big stakes and what is low stakes mm. because it's so, it's so low stakes in the sense that this is all happening within their mind right now. <laughs> like it's, it's actually not taking place in the real world. But there's yet, no guns and all that. Yeah, there's no guns. Like yeah. no one's getting hurt or anything. They're but all just yet, sitting when in a plane. In, <laughs> Yeah, they're also literally asleep on a plane. Um, but yet, like, in the dream, it feels so high stakes. Yeah. And this is, this is a, I guess, a mark of, of great storytelling in that classic sense of um, suspense, of disbelief, right? You're literally, it, it's, it's actually kind of meta if you think about it, right? It's like your suspense of disbelief is happening within the film that is in the film. Because remember the the team the high team is the crew mem is, is a film crew. Film. They're trying to create the entertainment for oh, us. Oh man, my mind for gone. us the viewers. It's ah, oh, <laughs> what a movie, man! What a freaking awesome movie! What a great movie! All right, so so let's let's quickly just talk about the layers themselves because um, the act two is act two is, is such a chunky part of the film. Um, there's so much going on. There's a lot of set pieces going on, some brilliant action set pieces that are, for the most part, practical. Um, but let's just sort of jump back and forth between the layers, layer one, layer two, layer three. I kind of want to start on layer uh, one because it's it's probably one of the most exciting set pieces, in my opinion, with um, the rotating hallway scene. And, Isn't layer and, one, um, sorry, what, do you mean layer two? Layer one's the... Layer one is the um, reigning city. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah Layer yeah, two is yeah. the You're hotel. You're right. La- layer two is the and hotel. Layer three so, is the snow. Right. So the so layer layer one is um the dream from uh De- what's his name <laughs> from Yusuf 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 that's his dream and then JGL's dream is is layer two. So let's yeah. start with um layer two just because I love it. <laughs> um. <laughs> This is this is kind of creating the foreground for what's eventually going to happen in layer three, um, and then down into limbo. But um, let's just talk about like this hallway scene here for a minute because um, it's such a short moment, and I I kind of wanted it to last a little bit longer. But I think if it lasted a little bit longer, it might probably drag its feet too much. But um, man, I love this scene, like the rotating hallway sequence. It's just, I feel so disorientated when it's happening. It's like flipping sideways or whatever. And you're you're kind of lost as to where, which part of the ground is like above or left or right or whatever. There's at one point they keep the, um, the camera still in line with the hallway so that all you see is JGL and um, the security guard like right. hitting the roof and then hitting the side and rolling, mm. but the, yeah. the the camera stays still. And then at another point, you follow them falling. So when they're on the ceiling, it's it's upside down and it's yeah. it's brilliant. I've and this is if if for any of our listeners you haven't watched the filming behind this, it is yeah. one of Watch the most it. exceptional and I think one of the most expensive shoots to ever have been done. Right? I think. Oh they, my god! They had a um a warehouse that was. Like an, uh, I think it was military base. It was like one of the biggest like spaces, so that they could put this hallway onto a gyroscope within this space. And yeah, it's my insane. goodness, yeah, massive awesome. revolving like pistons or whatever it was, or yeah. big big suspension holders, and um, right. and he, I can't believe he actually built that and then rotated it. 
I wonder if it's like exciting for the crew or not exciting to build something like that. I think those are the things where it's like if you got the money behind you, like the people that get to create those things love that. You know, when it's, mm. you have those opportunities, I think it's the same as architects who work for the companies without a big without a budget. Yeah, and, right. And hand mm. over control because I know there's the architect firms that work for the big companies that have a big budget but don't hand over control, and that's annoying. <laughs> That is. But I think in this case, like you have such a a director who says, yep, this is what I want to happen. Make it happen. Money is no issue. And and you see that in the final product. And it's very, that's such a Kubrick move. It's again, the other other thing to watch the behind the scenes of is in 2001, A Space Odyssey, watching the um, revolving space station filming is, that's amazing. And and it's that same, just ridiculous yeah, it's, it's it's such ego ego filmmaking, and I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite parts of the movie, just watching that sequence. And mm. I love the score behind this. We haven't actually spoken much about the score, but Hans Zimmer is a genius in what he done with this movie. <sighs> so good. And um and and I think it's emphasized a lot in this second layer, the second dream. Is there's, there's so much of that that classic like horn that's in the, is it a horn i don't know what it is uh, but so it is um it is the orchestral ensemble sound that that makes that big oh really i thought it was like a big horn no so it's um it's several i think it's several horns so several okay. brass instruments playing together right. because it is Slowed down, one of my favorite songs of all time, Edith Pierce. Um, oh, that's right. The uh, Non je ne regret rien. Yeah. Actually, you just reminded me of something as well. Uh, it's so, it's, uh, I spoke to some, I think it was like a few years ago, I spoke to somebody about what Inception's about and how there's meta within meta within meta in the way Nolan tells the story. And I'll probably talk about this more towards the end and the conclusion because if you haven't already heard it, then. I think it's going to blow your mind when I tell you about it. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I think I know what you're talking about there. <laughs> okay. 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 We'll, yeah. we'll jump to that in a second. But, um, um, yeah, the, but the score is in, and Hans Zimmer on that, on that point in the score utilizes this song and the folding in of this song into all elements of what he's creating. So that, that boom, boom sound boom, is boom. is yeah. the song slowed down to the umpteenth right. degree. Yeah, um, and I think what's it called? Umpteenth degree. Uh, umpteenth, umpteenth degree. Umpteenth. Sorry, as in okay. they've they've slowed down the song to the same point that oh, the song okay, would gotcha. play in the dream. So if you slow down this song to that pace, that's how it would sound. And they use the 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 tag of the song to to wake up from the dream. So when that song starts playing on any level, it's a way for them to time when to make a jump and when to make a second jump if they need to, if they miss the first jump. And that's a really clever little bit in the story where they're like, we have a couple of out points and one of them is jumping off the bridge in the van and another one's landing in the water. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. Anyways. Great um, ideas. Great ideas to like wake people up. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Cool. Act three, three, sorry, um, level level three. (laughs) Level three, level three. The big snow sequence. This is when he, when he's wanting the uh, Robert to actually changes. This is like the point of inception, right? Mm. Um, And this is the famous scene that's inspired by the James Bond movie that Mm. Nolan 
thinks is the greatest James Bond movie ever made, which I disagree with, is actually Casino Royale. <laughs> <laughs> hey, wait, but was this Casino Royale good. after or before Inception? I can't remember. Casino Must have been Royale after. Was definitely before. Oh, before two thousand seven. Yeah. What? That was Casino Royale. Yeah, yeah. Casino oh. Royale is old. Two thousand six, I do believe. And. Oh, I cannot believe uh, no one thinks that Casino Royale is not as good as that. Oh man, but Her Majesty's maybe it was too close. Close. Um, he couldn't. He couldn't claim that yet. But um, Her Majesty's Secret Service um, has a phenomenal um, chase scene on skis by Lazenby as Bond, and yeah. it is it is phenomenally shot. Like I will absolutely give him that. And I hmm. think in it would have been in Inspector. There's a bit yeah. of homage to that when um, they're at the. Um, rehabilitation clinic on top of the mountain oh yeah. yeah 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 similar yeah fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so <laughs> in the third level you know the team infiltrates um the alpine fortress with a projection of maurice inside um where the inception itself can be performed however yusuf performs his kick too soon by driving off a bridge <laughs> forcing arthur and eames to improvise a new set of kicks now when we talk about spatters of the works like there's just so many that just jump in the way and the ability to to uh i guess address those spanners in the works those problems and to recourse their plan is such a, a i guess it's just a genius um uh, way of telling the story by you're still presenting problems for the characters, but the characters are still figuring out how to actually overcome those problems, which I think is incredible. And it's a great way for me to be engaged with the characters in their journey mm. um, and not being too uh, too easy for them. So when it comes to uh, when things kind of hit the fan, um, the kicks therefore have to be synchronized with them hitting the water by rigging an elevator and the fortress respectively with explosives. <laughs> now this, this whole idea of like improvising is obviously coming from Nolan himself. He's clearly planned this for a very, very long time. And how he's telling the story is like the characters are going to go through these moments where they have to improvise. Um, and part of that improvisation is creating heavier, heavier kicks um, that are synchronized by the water hitting Oh, sorry, by the van heading into the water. It's like, ah, my brain hurts just thinking about this process of him coming up with this idea. (laughs) It's so stressful. (laughs) But again, like, it's it's easy for us as the audience to follow. It's just the thing that makes me um, anxious and stressed is thinking about his, like, Nolan's creative process of Mm. coming up with these ideas. Mm. Absolutely. I think um, particularly because the time pressure not only of getting out is also doubled by making sure that Robert gets inception before, mm. <laughs> before that. And um, the way in which they use the pinwheel, <laughs> yeah. the pinwheel to help him. And this is it, like, oh. you, I think, I think this is what confuses you on the first viewing uh, is that Eames is so clever at what he does and Cobb really trusts him to just do the job. So Cobb, mm. It's really interesting to see how Cobb makes sure the plan happens, but Eames is the one that does the inception, and I don't. You don't really have that sense of giving that much credit to Eames That's from correct. the get-go. He doesn't seem like a main character, but actually, he's the one that is thinking on the fly as to how to get Robert to think differently about his father's legacy. And I think the end inception is my father loved me, and he wants me to create my own legacy, and that the best thing that he ever created was me. That's and right. that's what Eames implants 
in Robert. Mm. <laughs> so that when Robert wakes up from his dream, he wants to end his family's business. <laughs> That's yeah. just ludicrous. It's completely ludicrous. And and it's like I'm sort of <laughs> I'm I'm at this part of the film and I'm like, what else are we going to be presented with? Like well, and, <laughs> it's like where else are we to go from here? And then you yeah. realize there's a lot more. There is a lot more. Like a lot you more think, okay, on. we're in the yeah, we're in the final lay here. You'd think, okay, cool. So this is, I guess, the end of it. But then, when we have to sort of go deeper into limbo, mm-hmm. um, this is tracing back to the beginning of the film, um, and, and I'm sort of like thinking as a viewer, like, oh, okay. So that whole point in the beginning was um, it, it was kind of like a ruse, I guess, like. I thought that whole beginning where he's on the beach was actually a part of that dream sequence. I had no idea. You know what I mean? Like I thought it was a part of that early dream sequence where we meet Sato, but it's actually not. Because so it's old like, Sato. It's old Sato and it's them being in limbo, which is at the end of the Inception ridiculous. mission. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Like absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> I think I think what and, – and this is like – this is really interesting too because it comes back to the initial issues that they have at the beginning of entering into the heist, that mm. Sato's been shot, that Cobb's being influenced, by, like Dream is being influenced by Mole and these projections mm. from his past, and that the security has meant that Cobb ends up dying. I think he gets shot. Oh, not mm. Cobb. Robert. Robert gets shot. Robert gets shot. Yeah. Robert gets shot. So even though he's had his inception moment, He's been, oh, no, I think it, it's even before that, before he even has his inception moment, mm. he gets shot. So they need to pull him out of limbo. And um, so they so they go down into limbo with like four realizations in mind. We have to get, we have to get Robert out so he can still have his inception moment. Mm-hmm. We have to go save Sato and Mole's down there because only people that have been in limbo before is cop. So yeah. whatever he's left down there is what they'll find. And, exactly. Um, and he knows Which exactly is, what that is. What so is, we get to the um, final villain moment, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, what's Arthur's uh, line that he says about um, how he describes limbo? Just un, unconstructed. Oh, wait. Untapped um, dream space. Yeah, something like yeah, that. Unconstructed like that. or dream space. Nothing's down there. Except for whoever has been down there, <laughs> yeah, whoever's shared the dream before, which is yeah. again, it's another one of those rules <laughs> to it, which like that's just ridiculous, like because <laughs> surely you could have a fourth. Anyways, yep, yep. So they yeah. they go down there, and now it's not just Cobb's stuff that's down there; it's also Sato's stuff because Sato yep. goes down there when he dies, and inevitably for him, it's been infinity. Years. Yeah, it's been. So he just started. How long building. has it been? It's been like uh, like fifty years or something. Well, he looks like he looks like he's aged horribly. <laughs> yeah, but I he, actually don't know, think that makeup looks good either. Though I think it it's not terrible. very. That that's probably one of the things that didn't <laughs> age well. And even yeah, but but you get down there, and this is at the point where we um, find out that Robert's been taken hostage by Mole, mm-hmm. and Mole happily gives up Robert as long as Cobb stays. Yeah. So. So um, Ariadne takes Robert back to level three, so they yeah. again experience. Well, he right. she kicks him. She kicks him. She kicks him oh, off the balcony. And that's his way to get. That's his way back to get his... back up. Yeah. And then yeah. she jumps off, and she goes back with him. Yeah. And then and rides the layers down. Rides the layers down, and then 
And that that's such a beautifully shot moment when she mm. rides the layers back out of yeah. the dream sequence and it's just following her face and the backgrounds are changing behind her as she falls. And yeah, she wakes this up. is this is going back to that really good piece of editing is like um the shots, how it changes of her um yeah, falling falling into the layers, you know, going first into the snowy layer and then back the into hotel. the elevator yeah. and then into the the van. Oh man, it's such a good piece of editing that whole part. And um and the music's going behind her. Van but um but then we find that Cobb has all the time in the world now and he takes that time with mole to say like i've i've let you go and it's at this point i believe that we learn exactly what he had done to her is that right um at this point no we've already learnt what he'd done to her maybe Um, we should talk about that about exactly yeah let's let's touch up on a little bit of it because i think this is an important part of his character is that he's he's carrying around some trauma that up to a certain point we only think it's about his detachment from his children but it's actually also the guilt that is weighing down on him Mm -hmm. of him actually being the one responsible for her suicidal death now this is kind of crazy because um like this whole time I'm thinking, okay, yeah, I guess she just got lost in the dream. And then when we find out that she's actually dead, I was like, oh, okay, she, she died in the dream, I guess, and just never got out. Yeah. But we don't actually know for sure if she's dead <laughs> with it in the happened. real world or or in the dream. And then we get the reveal that, oh, sorry, you're actually right. Like the, the proper reveal is that he was the one that done Inception on on her, oh, which is towards the end. But I think we get, we get um, um, I guess, maybe 80% of the truth. Yeah. Um, right in the in the middle of the film when he's explaining it to Ariadne. Yeah. When when but, she breaks into his dreaming while he's yeah. just spending time with Mal. Yeah. 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 And then at the very end we get the proper reveal is that he's the reason why I know Inception works is because I done it to her. Yeah. It's interesting <sighs> because there's there's another element though, because I think I do believe she actually did it to herself first. So if, if you're allowed to do Inception to yourself, well, so I guess it's not Inception. She chose no. to do something. So what she initially chooses to do um, is they entered into a dream. They went into limbo. Mm. And because they entered into limbo, it didn't matter how long they fell asleep for. It se- seemed like infinity. Yep. And while so down there, she becomes obsessed with being down there, creating whatever mm-hmm. she wants, just being with him, even though they've still yep. got their children back in the real world. That's and so it. what she does is she goes and takes her totem, which helps her know what's reality and what's false, mm-hmm. and she locks it away so that locks she away, no yeah. longer knows that she's dreaming. Everything yep. for her could be dream, could be reality, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But then his inception is going to that safe and spinning, spinning the top. Yep. And in spinning the top, the inception that she plants is that whatever reality you seem to be in, Mm-hmm. is a dream. And he did that initially to wake her up from it, but he yep. didn't realize that the power of inception is that is as, to... as you, as you, as you believe that thing, it becomes a mm. part of any reality you're in. So she starts to think all of reality is a dream. Yep. Which is, and, and this is, this is the, the great piece of, yeah, it's messed up. Eh? It's the Super great piece of storytelling up. here is because, is because the totem is, is a big piece of the puzzle for them to realize this is a dream and this is not a dream. And Inception works in favor of Mole killing herself because she is naturally placing the idea in her, in her, in herself, right? Remember, because she, like you said, she puts the, the spinning top into the safe. So it's her, it's her own idea, mm. but the idea is being meddled with. 
Um, and that's how it becomes a natural um, source of inspiration, let's say. Like, you know, going back to what uh, Arthur was saying, it's natural source of inspiration because it actually came from her. Mm-hmm. And that's how, it, that's the only way that Inception can work because it has to come from, from the person. That's yeah. crazy to think about this, like, stuff. It's like, how do you even come up with this? It's nuts. And it, it's really important that he does this in the film because I think it's important that you don't just see Inception happen once because what happens yep. to Robert is very complex. Yeah. But what happens to Mole has two elements of complexity. First idea is what his Inception was that you're dreaming. And the second yep. idea is how that festers into something worse, which is because she thinks she's dreaming, she's going to frame him for her murder. <laughs> That's right. So that she can kill herself and she doesn't even care because she thinks that it's a dream and what she's doing to him isn't wrong at all. And that's where you start to realize that that mentality, that mole, the mole that's been in his dream this whole time is one that is the ghost of not only his wife, but the ghost of his wife that has the same continued inception that she's in a dream. And Mm. that's super fucked up. It's super Mm. messed up and it's so sad. Like it's horrible. It's That's very sinister, film. actually. Yeah. It's yeah. very, very sinister. And it, really it's dark. like borderline sociopathic to yeah. to even have that um, in your mind. But it, in in some ways, it's probably not surprising for someone who's so experienced in this like dream heist, uh, dream stealing, dream sharing thing, <laughs> this mm-hmm. business, mm-hmm. is that like Cobb is an expert at what he does. And um, he he feels like he's betraying uh, a big sense of his probably identity uh, when he's having to hide something so horrific from everybody. And then when he, when he comes to terms with that, when he comes to terms with, um, I guess, making peace with Mal's death, um, he, there is a sense of, uh, I suppose I was going to say restitution, but there's no restitution that happens here. How do you like, how do you create restitution from effectively killing someone? (laughs) Well, like that's probably the better question than is at the end of the movie is cop still asleep or awake oh we're gonna get question, to that we're gonna no, get yeah, to no, that no, no, but i think this is actually a better question to ask is do you actually think that what cole did a uh, cop did was murder did does he deserve to be punished for what he did because it's this is what horrible. i don't like this like, is what i don't like but i mean i i do like it i'm just saying you know <laughs> it's being hyperbolic here this mm. is what i don't like about Mo- like nolan's films is that he's, he has so much moral ambiguity with his storytelling yeah. it's just yeah. he's just a great storyteller he's a good and it's, it's, it's like hard insomnia. to actually very much yeah like i know insomnia, right? actually this feels very similar this is true kind of quandary i just it's it's hard to ever really come to a point of justification for any of the actions that the characters go through mm-hmm. um and when you're looking at something like inception um and you ask the question is it murder it's like well i guess like legally speaking it's probably not murder right because murder is with intent to kill somebody um and he has no intent and he actually never killed her she committed suicide but it's it, it definitely presents Moral ambiguity. <laughs> it is. It's, uh, it's, uh, what we do is not technically legal. I think that's the line. Like, I think that, or like, I and I, I think coming back to it in this last viewing, that was something mm. that really stuck with me. And I think this follows through from other Nolan elements is that moral amb- ambiguity of his protagonists as to yep. the actions that they're taking not being the purest of motivations. And at times, True the mistakes of those motivations. Yes, they live with them, but often they don't see the justice behind them. 
Mm-hmm. And I think, mm. you know, in, in many ways, like with Insomnia, for instance, spoilers for those that haven't watched it yet, but when at the end the protagonist dies, we have a sense of catharsis that some form of justice has been done because this protagonist potentially deserves to die, like for mm. what their their crimes were. Mm. Uh, but then you also have other moral ambiguity as to their legacy and and I think this is this is quite similar, um, yeah. And maybe maybe we've got a fun theory for the end of this movie. Then that could <laughs> helpful helpfully like be a part of that. So yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, I'm just sort of like glancing back and forth at Inception, um, <laughs> but yeah, the all, all the characters that are presented in any of Nolan's movies, they're always presented with massive challenges and I, and I don't think he he ever has any movie um that he wastes his characters in the sense that they're taking up unnecessary screen time or have really ridiculous scripts that have nothing to do with the story itself. So um you know, the end of this film presents the biggest the biggest conundrum Ever and I think it's probably the biggest gasp I've ever heard in a theater when the credits start rolling. <laughs> yep. Like uh, there were gasps of like frustration, uh, Endgame, excitement. Uh, in- Infinity War had Infinity War is very similar gasp. as well. But, yeah. Um, yeah, but this was kind of like a jaw drop moment, and I could hear whispers actually in the cinema, mm. <laughs> people going, "Oh no, no, no! Please fall over! Please fall over! Please fall over! Fall over! Fall over!" <laughs> and then it just kind of tobbles a little bit, and then the screen cuts to black I've seen like youtube videos of like oh well like technically if that totem weighed this much it shouldn't be able to spin for that <laughs> people, long and like are people you like kidding? people like analyzing the physics of it i'm pretty sure they cgi'd the crap out of that totem and oh, nolan didn't just cut the film shot um oh, I no, love that. it's completely cg um uh, it's complete, yeah just but, like our um, instagram story for this review <laughs> <laughs> um yeah yeah so that's that's pretty much the end of the film um where you know Cobb he he wakes up from this long dream so to speak um from coming out of the limbo and he looks around in the in the airplane and everybody's like also waking up as well from their mission and he gets into the airport checks in goes through customs and he's sort of cleared um and that's sort of a moment of relief for him that he's he's accepted and cleared to get back uh, to his family, so not just the fact that he's cleared for customs, but it's uh, to me, I sort of read that as a as a point of like, okay, now he's cleared, he's ready to go see his his children. Um, he gets into the apartment, sees his children, and then we see the children turn their faces for the first time in the film. We've always been teased um, from the back of their heads, and we've never actually seen their faces, but now we get to see the faces, and so this is kind of the first point of like okay cool he's made it to his children this is not a dream and then the camera sort of takes a few steps back it tracks backwards and then does a slow zoom in to the totem that he spun just to make sure that he is not in a dream anymore and just before we actually know what the answer to this is or we when we anticipate that we're going to know the answer to this it just cuts to black while it's Mm. still spinning um, your thoughts? Is it a dream? Is it not a dream? <laughs> I got I got four theories, and I've got something that happened from a YouTube video or like oh, a, a interview on that. So, from literally from this cast, and just as we've been talking, here's mm. one 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 take that I, I have just thought of, similar to when Ariadne 
doesn't realize she's in a dream or not and you have the scarf change and she's in a different setting and they're in the Paris streets. There there is a very big potential that after walking into the through through the plane, um, through the airport terminal, there could be a similar cut to him going back into entering a dream. And one of the big like one of the big things that people have always brought up when it comes to theorizing if he's in a dream or not is even though his children you finally see their faces for the first time there's something really odd about the idea that they haven't aged, uh, that they look the same age that they looked when he'd first left them okay. um, uh, at their family home. Um, and there's been one of those other, and and, and uh, like I think there could be an element too where you could imagine actually Cobb, as soon as he got to the airport, actually did get arrested and he's in a cell and as a way to escape the pain, similar to Yusuf's uh, inmates who all sleep indefinitely, is that he's now entered into a dream state where he can just reimagine going back home to his kids. And 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 that could be his penance, that he lives in his limbo now where he's happily with his family but is actually incarcerated. But then there's two mm, then there, then there's another okay. then there's another no no but then there's another two theories, one of which is one which a lot of people have said in the past, where any um, uh, that 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 Cobb's totem isn't Mal's totem, that Cobb's totem is actually his wedding ring, and that whenever he is in I've a dream, he wears a wedding ring, and whenever he's not in a dream, he's not wearing a wedding ring. Mm-hmm. Um, which which would make sense as to his subconscious that whenever he's in the dream space, Mal's still there and he's still married and he's happy. Um, well, I don't really know if I care for that one as much. Uh, but then the <laughs> last one, the last one was uh, an interview with Michael Caine where he was talking. I don't know. Have you heard of this interview? Uh, maybe. Okay. So Michael Caine in, a, in an interview, you can look this up on YouTube. We can put it, post it in the show notes. He's on stage and he's talking about his conversations with Christopher Nolan because he said after this film, everyone always asks me, was it mm-hmm. a dream? Wasn't a dream? Was it a dream? Wasn't a dream? And Michael Caine said that Christopher Nolan said to him, "Here's how you know whether it's a dream or not, Michael. Any any scene that you are in is reality, <laughs> and any other scene is a dream for the most part. So aside from like all the montage stuff, and he's like, so that's how we know I was in that scene, so it was reality. <laughs> that's what Michael Caine said." And he said that that's something he was told by Chris, Christopher Nolan. I don't know. Mm. I, <laughs> what, okay. are your, what are your thoughts, River? <laughs> um, yeah, my thought, my thoughts are I don't like any of those theories. I think okay, cool. <laughs> I think they're terrible. No, I'm kidding. Um, okay, so so this is my theory, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm pretty confident that this is the answer. This is correct. Hey, Jim, you hit me up. Hit me up. Um. So the whole thing is a dream. The whole thing is a complete dream. And the reason why I'm saying this is because it's there's some deep diving that I've done into the movie itself and the research that Nolan done for this movie in preparation to make it. And so he's actually been writing the story since 2002. He presented this um, story to a bunch of studios and they all were kind of keen, but then he sort of, he took a step back and he said, oh, I think I, I need a little bit more time to like flesh out the story a bit more, take my time with the characters, and um, I'm not quite ready um, in presenting this movie to audiences yet. Uh, because, you know, when you're going to studios, there's a bit of a deadline if they decide that they want to take the movie on board. There's a deadline to meet for scripting and um, 
and pre-vising and pre-production. So he couldn't actually make those deadlines. So he decided to just put it on hold. So he'd be making, he's been writing the story for a very, very long time. And when I did some research, and this is going back to what I was saying to you before that we'll get to the end where I explain a little bit of um, some uh, Easter eggs, I suppose, that you might not have heard of, but I think you might have heard of, <laughs> is that the song itself, you know, what's the song called again? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, no, je ne re- regret Dorian. Yeah, that one. No, je ne regret Dorian. <laughs> All right. So that song is two minutes and 28 seconds yeah (laughs) and that's the runtime of inception yeah i love that (laughs) yeah so that's that's two hours and 28 two hours yes (laughs) two hours and 28 minutes so that's primarily the reason why i believe that it's actually all a dream and when you when you think about when you think about the whole way to wake up from a dream is to not just to ride the layers but you also need the prompt of that song you know, it's just, it's it's kind of like the calling signal um, for them to start waking up, and the fact that this movie has a duration of two hours and twenty eight minutes, and the song is two minutes and twenty eight sec- seconds, it just seems too much of a of a I guess a point of contention for it to not be a coincidence. Like I think I think he definitely did that on purpose, but I I and I've heard that before, but I don't know mm-hmm. if that would be um, give reason for the whole film to all be a dream. I think that's him just doing a nice little Easter egg nod to saying what, and, and, and maybe that's more an Easter egg nod to this being a film that yes, films are dreams. Mm. Okay. That's, so that's how I, that's how I read that when I, um, yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah. continue. continue. <laughs> and, and also like, you know, going back to that point of he uses the, the team, the heist team mm. as a film crew. Mm. And so the whole thing being sort of a meta concept and a dream within dream it almost seems to me that I could rationalize to think that this whole movie or this whole story was actually a dream itself. Hmm. Um, and I want to read a couple of statements that Christopher Nolan has made because guaranteed, you know, as you would know, he's been asked this question he's constantly. About I, this. He's I like, think why he's... did I even make this movie? <laughs> <laughs> but I, like he, I think he didn't, he done this and he would have expected it though. Right. Like mm. um, he said in multiple interviews, like he, he pretty much has a consistent statement for this. Um, he says, uh, perhaps all levels are of reality are valid. Um, oh, sorry. All levels of reality are valid. But he also said he doesn't care if the, if the place he ends, ends up in the end is just another dream. It's where he feels he belongs. Okay. So in other words, Nolan's trying to say that the character it, it's it's less important about whether the whole film is a dream, but it's more important where the character ends up by the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Does that kind of make sense? Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not get that part? <laughs> I, mean, I missed that. <laughs> um, he says he says that it's less important um, whether the film is a complete dream. Mm-hmm. And it's more important where the character ends up by the end of the film, which is him, which is, which is Cobb having the catharsis. Yeah. Happy, yeah. satisfied. He's, he's having a cathartic moment, which is getting back to his, his kids. Right. I, and being comfortable with the fact that he's made resolution with yeah. his uh, wife's death. I think yeah. that's definitely an element for me. Like that's he, he gets to experience the same catharsis that Robert felt when he was incepted. 
Correct. Yeah. yeah. That yeah that that resonates with me as well. Like I think. And I'm happy maybe, with maybe that's the a question explanation. With that, like. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm happy with the explanation, but I'm like, no, is it a dream or is it not a dream? <laughs> killed his wife, man. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, all altogether brilliant, and I think this is what one of those elements, though, with this particularly with this twist, is that um, unlike our other favorite movie of all time, The Matrix, the energy that followed from this movie had that sense of hype theory super twist kind of vibe where this is great and this is awesome but what does that mean at the end of the day um whereas the matrix had this real shift into people's sense of what's reality what's unreality what's created what's um controlled um and this movie had instead very much a sense of oh that was cool twist (laughs) and my and, and and i wonder how much um influence inception had on birthing um Hollywood's next decade of bad twists in films. I think this is a very good twist, but, um, but I feel like a lot of bad twists in films followed, uh, as a result of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) I think Um, there's a lot of movies that try to follow suit with, um, everything from, yeah, from themes to visual effects to action set pieces, um, especially, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Especially the, the, um, musical score. Uh, mm. I think so many trailers and so many movies try to emulate what um, Hans Zimmer done with Inception. Mm. It actually kind of became a little bit annoying. Like all these big action films started to put it in their trailers, like, Dan, Dan. I'm like, oh, okay, look, none of you guys uh, can be original for, you know. Yeah, Lauren Order did it first. So <laughs> dong, dong. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, um, another one though, have you, have you watched the movie um, Waking Life? No. It's a bit of an artistic um, little cult film. Hang on, I'll just find the um, details on But basically, it's uh, all set in a other reality of lucid dreaming where oh. everything's cartoon, but the way that the film is, is made is it's, it uses the special effects where they film people in real life and then they cartoonify it. And every scene is just conversations between these people trying to work out if this person is awake or asleep. Mm. Um, and, and you start to have this sense that this person is actually at, at death's door and they might be dying. But um, this, this, this movie makes it seem like actually this is all a dream and um, the end of life becomes a dream and what's reality, what's unreality, what's life and what's death. And um, if, if you like Inception... Mm. hands down i recommend waking life it's it's a bit um auteur but uh it's very very cool i'll find the director's name um and the the um the filming of it's phenomenal it was made in 2001 and it is directed by let me find uh richard linklater and ethan is the star yeah yeah very cool so a uh, strong recommendation if you like Inception. I think you'll like Waking Life. And if Mark you get confused in by Inception, you'll get very confused by Waking Life. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, I don't think Inception is confusing at all. And yeah, um, like we were saying in the beginning, um, it's it's definitely one of the easiest Nolan movies to follow. Mm. Um, um, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I guess like the Batman movies are quite easy to follow. But even in the Batman movies, there's probably a bit more... Um, of sophisticated going on yeah there's there's a lot more subplots that happen in the batman trilogy as opposed to 
Inception doesn't really have subplots as such. It's really just got one solid plot where everybody has a lot to do in the film. And mm. um, it's super easy to follow. You know, Ariadne is like the character that is um, pretty much playing the role of the audience. You know, we're learning. She's learning how to, like, what Inception is about. She's learning what dream sharing is about while we're also learning through um, that lens too. Mm. So super, super easy. Um Let's uh let's give it a rating. Ooh. Yeah, boy. You go first. <laughs> um, yeah, I was thinking about this. I um can't remember exactly what I rated for the prestige, but I feel like this would I remember what your rating is for the prestige. What was it? Ten, 10 out of ten. 10. <laughs> well, this mm. is just below that. Just I think this film, like I said, this introduced me to Nolan, but it also had such a like amazing, incredible energy of I think what Nolan has the capacity to do and what films have the capacity to do in terms of like crazy storytelling, high concept, but fast, fun, action packed. Um, that even if you, like I say, even if you don't follow exactly what's going on, it doesn't really matter as much. You can just go along for the ride. And I think that gives this movie both strength uh, as a film, but it gives it a lot of legs going into the future. And I feel like this will be a, uh, and already is, but will continue to be a cult classic for decades. Um, mm. And and part of how we filmed it, aside from Sato's old man makeup, like <laughs> I think it's all going to like stand the test of time as well. Um, I don't think that person got hired for his <laughs> movies. <laughs> he didn't win an Oscar for uh, makeup design. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But um, yes, yeah, so I'm probably going to give it a nine point. Give it, got to have a bigger wiggle room. Six, nine point six out of ten. Yeah. Nine point six out of ten. That's my rating. Yeah. What about 9. you? Nine point six out of ten. Yeah, I got a couple of issues uh... with it, but nothing. Yeah, nothing bad. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well. Hmm. So my rating I give this is. Uh, I'm just gonna say it out of the blocks instead of like um, going through what I love about it. <laughs> I'm gonna say that this movie is a ten out of ten for me. Woo! Um, it's just great. I think um, the the storytelling. Just just the storytelling alone, like not even talking about the characters, storytelling alone is a 10 out of 10. Like mm-hmm. I cannot think of anybody that can pull off such an idea like this um, that is so large, so sophisticated in its essence, but it's really well told. It is spoon fed to us, but not in an annoying way where they have to, where the director has to like constantly explain what's going on in the film. It's, um, he found he found a formula by utilizing the characters to explain the story while not feeling like it's overexposed, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I and I think anybody that can pull that off is going to get a ten out of ten for storytelling. I, I can't actually think of any other director that can pull off that kind of high concept stuff while you know flooding us with exposition but not feeling like it's annoying. Like I need, like I, I never thought that I needed it, but. Um, I guess it's kind of needed for such a big idea and big concept. Mm. So wow. huge, massive, is this, massive. Is this your number one Nolan film then? Um, you no. Eleven out of ten. This is this is okay. Somewhere. This is the crazy thing. This is the strange thing about how I rate films. Um, my my favorite Nolan film is probably still going to be The Dark Knight. Yeah. Um, yeah. and The Dark Knight. I think did I give the I think I gave the Dark Knight ten out of ten. I actually can't remember. It was either like a nine or a ten out of ten. But um, 
let's say hypothetically that I gave The Dark Knight a 9 out of 10. I still prefer to watch The Dark Knight um, as a favorite because there's 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 a bunch of things that The Dark Knight does for me, which is the emotional aspect of The Dark Knight. Mm. Um, I can actually feel something for the character and what the character is going through as opposed to Inception. It's not really designed as a way to feel something for the character. I feel a, a, diff- a range of emotions that are quite different um, in The Dark Knight as opposed to how Cobb is in this movie. So um, I just think in, in terms of storytelling is um, and the ambitious ideas to tell the story is much greater than The Dark Knight because The Dark mm-hmm. Knight is is yeah, just a different concept and it's I think it's a, much easier to convey the concepts in The Dark Knight as opposed to Inception. I'd agree with that. And I think that's where you could you could say 10 out of 10 for this as a Nolan film. I feel like Batman and The Dark Knight, like such a strong Nolan film, but also such a strong Batman film as well. And mm. such a strong film overall, not just because it's a Nolan film. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, cool. I dig that. Yeah, 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. I, I actually um, believe that Inception is one of the greatest movies ever made. Mm. I am. Um, mm. I'm with you on that, 100. Mm. percent I, I, um, yeah, I really should. I, I feel like I've tried it before, but I really tried to catalog all the films I've watched on Letterbox, <laughs> and then it just it just spirals out of control, and you just get bored just sitting there trying to think through all the films you've watched and try like rating them. And yep, I think this works better. Podcasting works a lot better. Podcasting <laughs> works. Take better, your time yeah. to enjoy talking about elements of films you wouldn't ever really talk about with someone and maybe guys for anyone listening uh it's it's definitely something we'd love to hear your thoughts on because it's nice to talk about specifics in films and give films time of day where when you talk to a friend particularly someone that doesn't care about something as much and they Mm. say oh what did you like about it you only have like less than a minute to explain to them what you like about it and that sucks that's why podcasting is the best we can talk about the things we love about this movie or hate about it all day long yeah yeah and i'm pretty sure we could actually just keep talking about this movie for the next like three or four hours or something but you know um we'll probably be in fear of uh losing listeners at that point but (laughs) that's cool If if, if that's what you're up for guys let us know if this mm. is too long, let us know as well. <laughs> exactly. We have a tendency to just talk and talk and talk. I think it's just because we love film so much and there's just so much to cover. Oh, yeah. So much to cover. So <sighs> we should probably bring this to an end. Speaking of which, let's bring this to an end. This is our, <laughs> our recap of Inception, the sixth Nolan film that we have reviewed and recapped on the Legacy Series for a legit cool podcast. Um, thanks for coming on board again, Nathan. Thanks so much, Trevor. Awesome to be here, man. Yeah. So Where can everyone find you? Where can everybody uh, stalk you? Yeah, yeah. You can stalk me on my Instagram at npsami, S-A-M-I. Uh, you'll find food and coffee and running and movie Instagram stories all the time. What about you, <laughs> River? <laughs> well, you can stalk me on at river underscore V-I-L-I. That's my full name, River villy an underscore in between most importantly you can follow legit cool podcast at legit cool podcast on instagram on facebook it's legit cool podcast um if you're whatever uh listening platform you're listening from could be spotify google podcast apple Podcasts. um be sure to hit the notifications button on the top right hand corner of your platform 
And um, what's the next movie we're going to be doing for the Legacy series? Oh, yeah. We are going to finish up our trilogy of Batman Nolan films, uh, The Dark Knight Rises. The Dark Knight Rises. Oh, my goodness. Where his voice gets even deeper. The Dark Knight. Well, <laughs> we could do the Bane voice, but that's going to be very exciting. Uh, looking forward to talking to you guys about that and talking about that film. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be very, very fun. I actually am going to rewatch it again probably tonight or tomorrow. Nice. I... Um, <laughs> I already did my rewatch. I might do a second <laughs> speedy rewatch, and uh, it surprised me a lot. I think after doing this series, so I agree to, with you. I yeah, agree with you. I was a lot surprised. once you read a not have a Nolan filter after your film. So awesome, guys! Looking forward to seeing you then. Awesome, man! Thank you so much, and we will catch you guys on the next episode.